Hello and welcome to a bonus episode of Cabin Boy Minute. Here we interview journalist Michael Tedder. Among his many accomplishments, he's best known in the Cabin Boy universe as having authored the December 5th, 2018 Ringer article entitled, This is Just So Shitty, We Gotta Watch. The beautiful, inspirational disaster of Cabin Boy 25 years later, where he interviews Chris Elliott, Adam Resnick, Melora Walters, John Worcester, Dan the Automator, among others, and puts together a really fine piece of Cabin Boy literature. We truly appreciate him coming on the podcast, so thank you, Michael, and as always, thank you to our fans for listening and helping to reposition Cabin Boy in the annals of time. Get ready to set sail with this bonus episode interview with Michael Tedder. Michael Tedder, thanks for joining us here on Cabin Boy Minute Podcast. Cool. Thank you for having me. It's a, it's, a, it's an honor. Yeah, the <laughs> honor the, the honor is certainly all ours. And uh, I mean, I, at the top, I, I apologize in advance. Uh, we're going to attempt to kind of uh, ask you some questions about the Ringer article, if that's all right with you. Well, great. Yeah. And uh, I mean, if you just set your expectations, like you're being uh, interviewed by a fifth grader for the school newspaper, then you probably have them uh, right where they need to be. So for our audience, can you just kind of tell us a little bit about what you're up to and uh, who you are? And... Okay. Uh, I'm a freelance uh, pop culture journalist. Um, I've written for Esquire, The Ringer, Stereo Gum, Variety, Playboy, places like that. Uh, you know, I write about film, music, television. And for people who aren't aware, The Ringer is a website owned by Bill Simmons, or run by Bill Simmons, and it's owned by Spotify. And they are... A, they do a lot of sports coverage, but they also have a really robust uh, pop culture uh, side, which is really great. And I think they do a really great job over there. They really support, like, you know, long-form, in-depth critical reporting and, uh, you know, critical thinking, which I respect. And a couple of years ago, I noticed that this company, Kino Lorber, was going to reissue Cabin Boy on DVD, a restored version, for its 25th anniversary. I thought, you know, I really loved Cabin Boy when I was a kid. And it, it does have like a, a cult uh, cult following. So I pitched the uh, guy who at the time was at the editor-in-chief over there, Sean Finnessy, very smart man. Uh, I told him, because Sean Finnessy is like a really like knows a lot about film. Like his uh, Oscar podcast are always like really smart and informative. I said like, you know, you're a really smart man with a really great, uh, you know, fancy taste. Uh, you know, you're very uh, refined. But I want you to forget your refined uh, love of cinema and let me write about Cabin Boy. And uh, – he, he 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 let me do it and uh yeah so uh from there i got hold of the company kino lorber and i uh, started setting up interviews beautiful i, I mean th and the article you write is entitled this is just so shitty we gotta watch the inspirational disaster of cabin boy 25 years later yeah <laughs> I mean, it's really a great read. I mean, I've read it uh, multiple times. I mean, I reread it again uh, before today as well. And I, I mean, it certainly holds up 
And, and I would say definitely one of the inspirations as well for us doing the podcast and helping us kind of contextualize oh, the wow. conversations that we have. So, you know, thank you for putting that out there and putting the work out. And it's it's a really a great piece of uh, piece of literature, if you will. <laughs> oh, gosh, thank you very much. So, I mean, you said that you're, you know, you've always liked Cabin Boy. Can you tell us a little bit of kind of your cabin boy history or anything uh yeah. when you first saw it or anything like that okay so this is going to date myself but when i was a kid like really young like maybe seven or whatever i really loved get a life mm. uh i was too young to watch this day like watch david larman i don't think i would have uh, gotten it but i love get a life because it came on right after the simpsons and all the kids were obsessed with the simpsons back then and uh just something about the weird cartoonish completely unreal random humor of get a life just really spoke to me as a kid I thought it was the best show. And I think it may have been the first show I was ever sad got canceled. Mm. And, uh, you know, when you, when you have a certain type of t uh, taste, when you like the more strange stuff, you, you eventually get used to the stuff you love and getting canceled too soon. But this is the first time it ever happened to me. So, uh, yeah, and if, if, if a memory serves, Cabin Boy came out January 1994. Like, exactly. Yeah, whenever a film comes out in January – uh, <laughs> behind the studio is burying it. Right. Uh, yeah, so like you know, now I'm now I'm old. Like, oh yeah, January release. That, 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 that's not going to be good whatsoever. But I didn't realize that as a, as a kid. So my mom dropped me and my French mom off, and uh, I laughed through the entire thing. I thought it was great. <laughs> uh, you know, and then like every, throughout high school, like when I would meet people, I make jokes like, "This is how who the girl dances," <laughs> or uh, "These pipes are clean," you know, and. Uh, but like later, I got older, you know, I started studying film and things like that. And sure, I realized, oh, this, this film got really bad reviews. Like people's <laughs> but then as I got older, I, I touched upon the piece. I realized, oh, this has actually become kind of like a cultural touchstone for a certain type of comedy fan. Definitely. So, I mean, that that's kind of one of the things that we're, you know, going through in the podcast as well. And, you know, we'll touch on some more of the particulars. But, I mean, if you were to kind of sum up uh, either based on your article or your own feelings about Cabin Boy. I mean, what do you think people need to know about the movie Cabin Boy? I think the reason it's kind of endured is it like it wasn't the first film to be like, you know, joke after joke where it doesn't like have a lot of, like, you know, care for like the narrative or whatever, because like that's been around since like the Marx Brothers or the Zucker Brothers with airplane stuff. But it took that kind of like, here's a very flimsy story that we know that it, this is kind of there to serve the jokes and like push that to the next level. And it's like made it so random that it became <laughs> like kind of surreal. And like the director, Adam Resnick will, will gladly, will freely admit that he, it was his first time directing. He, he wasn't, he didn't have a strong hand, but it makes it better because it makes it more ramshackle. And you can kind of see like the scenes and it's kind of like, you know, a scratchy rock, a punk song where it's like, yeah, the production's not great. It's kind of like noisy, but that's what makes it beautiful. Like, the shaggy dog quality was really endearing. Definitely. I mean, one of the interesting things that we found, because, I mean, as we're realizing ourselves, we're probably some of the people in the world that have done the deepest dive in Cabin Boy. Uh, you know, I'll wear that proudly now, having yeah. re recorded so many hours of this podcast. But we, I mean, we find that there really actually is 
a lot more behind it because I, I have a, one of the early drafts of the screenplay as well. So we get to see a lot of the things that were cut out from the movie, uh, that kind of through line that makes it less of a shaggy dog, I guess. Yeah. And we're, we're left with the kind of edited version of Magic. But uh, it's just interesting that there really was a lot more thought put into it than uh, it seems for, you know, just kind of the reputation it has, you know. Oh. Yeah, like, what, 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 you know, remind me, what were some of the things that were cut again? Well, just like a through line of the story. I mean, at the beginning, there's the quote about, uh, you know, nothing so liberates the heart as when a fool awakes from his folly. Yeah. Right. And there's, I mean, there's a lot of that kind of story about kind of the struggle that Nathaniel is going through in the screenplay and kind of his developing that character along the way that is all just, you know, it's not really jokey stuff as much as just telling that story. So that that's one of the big pieces that kind of jumps out reading the screenplay. Yeah. Um, I didn't read the original screenplay, so you got one of me. <laughs> oh, well, it's, it's not a competition. <laughs> yeah, I mean, and another thing I love, and this is just my own curiosity and really ignorance of uh, how journalism works. I mean, you said that you went to go, you know, you suggested the article. And then so how do you go about like securing there's a bunch of people, you know, oh. quoted and interviewed in the Ringer article itself. I mean, how does how did that work? This is one of the ones where uh, it's all done over the phone because no one was in the New York City area. So uh, so I, I tracked down the publicity company for Kino Lorber, and they put me in touch with Adam Resnick, who was a little bit like hesitant, just I think he's sick of talking about Cabin Boy. You know, he's like a really, he's written a book, he's written some other screenplays, he's like a really smart guy, and you know, he's definitely like a you know a cool hip dude, but like refined comedy taste. I think he's like a little, he's kind of embarrassed. He's he's mostly known for this, but we did a pre-interview, and he kind of warmed up the idea of talking to me. We like did two long interviews. And then he he said, I'll reach out to see if Chris Elliott will talk to you. Because they're, they're still friends, but Chris Elliott doesn't like do a lot of interviews these days. But yeah. And then I talked to Chris, and he was very open. He said, like, yeah, you got a lot out of me. Like, I wasn't planning on talking about it. <laughs> and then uh, from there, if you're a journalist, you can sign up for a service called Who Represents. Or if you look at it online, it also reads as whore presence. Uh, <laughs> and uh and you, from there, you can kind of like sign in and find the publicist or agent for various uh, celebrities. So I did that for um, Melora Walters, who her people were like very happy to talk because, you know, like uh, she's like a character actress. So I'm sure like any kind of publicity, they're always just happy to get their name out there. And, you know, she's like great. She works all the time. And, uh, you know, I, I cover music a lot. So John Worcester, who I talked to because I knew like he was a big fan, Sharpling Worcester, he got to get on your show in these days, like. Uh, he is in a lot of like indie rock bands. He's in Super Chunk, The Mountain Goats, and uh, Bob the Bob Mold Band. All of them were on Merge Records, so I've worked with for a lot of stuff. So that was an easy interview set up. He was great to talk with. And then Dan the Automator, I also just not his publicist like through Googling. Right, handsome boy modeling school. Right? Yeah, classic album. Have you gotten him on the show? <laughs> He'll love to talk about it. No, we haven't. I mean, you know, we're kind of just a couple of dudes doing a podcast and uh all this hollywood stuff is kind of new to us so but yeah i mean we would love to i mean really i've just i've reached out like on twitter happenstance like this kind of stuff uh that you know you reached out and uh we've hooked it up but yeah i mean uh we'd love to have any any of these people on to talk about it because we love it mm -hmm. who is it patrick monahan too that was another yeah, one you I know 
one of the funniest guys on Twitter, and he is part of a movement, which I think maybe is like diminishing popularity, but he's still really popular on Twitter called Weird Twitter, where it's just like extremely random jokes that like, you might not even get the joke, but it's the fact that someone made a joke about that is like kind of the funny thing. Like a lot of it is he'll joke about the video game character Waluigi, who is an evil version of Luigi. He jokes about it a lot. And I think the joke is like, why do you care about this stupid random thing? And like, that's what makes it funny. So I thought, like, you know, I know Patty just to we've done karaoke together. And you know, like, you know, he's such a random weird guy. Or he has such a random weird sense of humor. I bet he would love this movie. And it turns out he did. <laughs> Perfect. And uh, apologies, but all these kind of weirdos tend to congregate around uh, Cabin Boy. <laughs> we oh, yeah. Absolutely. Was uh was there anyone else at the ringer who was a fan of Cabin Boy? Or were they all just had no idea what you were talking about? You know, I'm a freelancer, so I'm not really privy to like all the behind the scenes discussions. But, you know, I finished them for pretty regularly. Like, uh, you know, just a couple weeks ago, I did a piece about um, the new Bob Odenkirk film, uh, Nobody. And uh, so, like, if any of the editors there were like, why why are we doing this thing? They, they kept that opinion to themselves. Uh, the other editor I worked with, like, they both had nice things to say about the piece. I'm like, okay, cool. Like, I think they were aware this thing has, like, some kind of cult sensibility. So, like, yeah, you know, it's worth doing anything on. Yeah, so in the in the article you say, though flawed, Cabin Boy is a cinematic experience like nothing else, and one that has been extremely important to the development of comedy. Yep. I mean, you know, even like you were just mentioning, uh, like weird Twitter and those kind of out of context uh, jokes. I mean, do you feel that Adam and Chris's kind of comedy was more or less the forefounders of that kind of yeah. joke? Yeah, like, you know, you, you can never put it to just one person or one thing. So they definitely, like, have, like, other people they, they share credit with. But you can definitely draw a through line between what they do and Adult Swim-type humor, where it's just extremely random. And therefore, a couple years ago, oh gosh, 10 years ago, when uh, Chris Elliott was in the TV show Eagleheart, I'm like, yeah, that makes complete sense. Like, he definitely needs to be on an Adult Swim show. And uh, I find it strange that those two, that Adam and Chris, haven't, like, done a show together for Adult Swim. like. They've mentioned before, like they both work. Like, uh, if I could redo one thing about the article now, I would have paid a little more attention to Shit's Creek because I wasn't watching it at the time. But I enjoy the show now. But at the time, like it was just still kind of an under the radar show. And now it became like a huge Emmy-winning like pop culture juggernaut. Part of it because people just and like like very like friendly and warm hearted to watch during the pandemic. And I would point out that oh yeah, like the fact that Chris Elliott was on this pop culture uh, phenomenon, Shit's Creek, was kind of like a comeback for him. And I'm sure because of that, like he will like. I don't know if he'll star in his own sitcom, but he's going to keep working off of that. Like, I'm sure he'll be, like, uh, popping up a lot more because of that. Um, but, you know, and, like, Adam, like, writes for TV shows. But, like, he mentioned once that, yeah, whenever, like, in the 90s, they're, like, take meetings together, people are like, absolutely not. Not the Cavalry. Mm. But I figure, like, there's now enough, like, pop cultural lore and, like, so many outlets and need content. I'm surprised those two haven't done something together yet. But I bet it'll happen one of these days. Because they're still really good friends. In your article, you, you know, you say that uh, Chris and Adam, they kind of both admit that this was a tough period in their life, Cabin Boy, mm -hmm. uh, which makes it hard for them to enjoy the cult status of the film. And like, I don't know, we, we take it on in Cabin Boy Minute as like a personal mission to try and rebrand and get this. Get the, I know it's a futile attempt, likely, but that doesn't stop us from doing it to, you know, not only get the fan base together, but motivated to repaint 
the movie for Adam and Chris, even if that's all that comes out of this, that yeah. they not only know that people love it, but to the extent that we love it, you know? Yeah. I think they realize now that there are fans for it. They just like, and I didn't even say like, I don't know if I, if I was involved, if I wasn't involved with the movie, if I watched it, if I would like it. And I think I wouldn't. Because I don't really know what people like about it. I tried to explain to him, but he's just too close to it. But he's flattered that people care about it. But, you know, like, at the same time, he was aware that, like, even at the time, it found some weirdos. Like, a story he told me that didn't make it, got it out for a reason, uh, was, like, Courtney Love randomly met him and told him that Kurt Cobain loved that film. Which, yeah, Kurt Cobain was kind of known to be somewhat of a goofball at times. So it makes sense to me. Definitely. Any other kind of stories that jump out that um, maybe hit the cutting room floor? Uh, that didn't make it into the article. I'm trying to think what else. I, I think it's just one of the things like you know that was they always try to like make it make the piece as tight as possible so like some uh, digressions get cut. But like one one thing I theorized was okay, so and this is just my conjecture. So Tim Burton was originally going to make the film, and like right. he want as he was going to make it after Batman Returns, he wanted to return to like his roots, making like weird oddball comedies. And my theory at the time was like okay, so this is after Paul Rubens had been uh, arrested for public exposure. Um, and so at that point, Paul Rubens was very toxic. So maybe he's like, okay, so I can't make another PB Herman film. Who's another like idiot boy man child? And I think, and then he loved uh, Get a Life because "Ah, that's a good idiot man boy child. And then like, I do kind of wonder what Tim Burton's version of it would have been because I will freely admit, I have not been a a huge fan of anything Tim Burton's made in quite a while, but man, when he was in the nineties, he was like, he was, he was like a God, like all his stuff was great. Like, would his cabin boy have been better? I don't know. Because I feel like it might have been more professional and more put together and maybe technically a better movie, but maybe not as weird. Yeah, I mean, it's definitely something we explore in our podcast. You know, it, it, it seems to go hand in hand with if Tim Burton directed instead of Adam Resnick. And the way that we put it in the podcast is what could have been done to make the movie more palatable to a general audience? You know, I mean, it's, it's a reviled movie in a lot of respects. Yeah. And if you were to change it, I mean, obviously it would be different, but are you going to so inexorably lose what we wound up with? You know, is there a world where that could have happened? It's like, I wondered in peace, like, okay, so what if Cowboy was a hit? Would Chris Elliott have had the career in the 90s of, like, say, Jim Carrey and Adam Sandler, those guys? Or is Chris Elliott just too at his core of a provocateur guy who's just a little too weird for mass consumption? And his natural level, I say as a love, is like as a cult star. I think probably as a cult star, but I don't know. Could be wrong. Yeah, I mean, you you say in the article, so I'm quoting you here, it says... uh, Perhaps Elliot and his friend were always just too strange, too eager to provoke rather than please the audience, too dedicated to the unsafe choice to become bona fide superstars. Yeah. And I mean, do we think that's the case? I mean, that they they you know, they're so into their own kind of inside jokes and uh, that they really don't care. And that's part of the joy of watching them. And I know you strike on this as well. It's it's kind of with them. You feel like you're you're on the inside of the inside joke, you know? Yeah. And like, I think the content of one thing is good to keep in mind is okay. Today with so many streaming outlets, so many entertainment options, it's easier for a place like Netflix or HBO max or whatever. It's like, okay, we will give a small amount of money to this one filmmaker who will make something that's like going to baffle most of the audience, but the people who love it will really love it. That's where we get stuff like, I don't know, 
Nathan for you or how to a John Wilson or like all kinds of stuff. I love back, those too, by the yeah, way that you mentioned. Yeah, I did too. So back in the nineties, like, you know, you had like, you had cable, but you didn't have, you know, it's still like fairly kind of limited and you had like the movie theater. It's like, okay, so we need to make things for the broadest possible audience. And, you know, there were niche things here and there, but something that defiantly weird wouldn't have get made on purpose. It would have to get made by accident. Which, I mean, essentially is the Tim Burton story, right? I mean, yeah. that's that was the accelerant and that propelled it forward and kept it alight, if you will. You know? Yeah, because back then, like, Tim Burton was having hit after hit. So, like, okay, so if Tim Burton wants to make a comedy. And then once he dropped out, like, the script had been made, the script had been written. Dang, people had been cast. It was ready to go. It was like, they couldn't really stop production without, like, you know, losing a lot of money. And he just recommended Adam, and people were like, okay, well... Tim Burton thinks is a good idea, then sure. So, <laughs> right. why not? Yeah. And uh, I mean, another interesting thing from your article is that uh, Adam says that the movie is not hacky like a Poly Shore movie, right? I mean, this is mm-hmm. something that really seems to get at him that yeah. it was called hacky. So, I mean, what we try to explore is if the movie's not hacky. You know, what is it then? If, like, say, a Pauly Shore movie, uh, one of his many hits, Biodome, uh, In the Army Now, etc., are considered hacky, you know, yeah. what what is Cabin Boy then? Like, and I don't, people can like what they want. And there are things I like that are probably, like, you know, lowbrow and stupid. Uh, so I'm not, like, attacking anyone's taste if you like Biodome or whatever. Um, but I think what bothered Adam, because, again, like, he's, like, a really smart guy. Uh, if I remember correctly, I think he went to NYU. Um, you know, well... You can tell he's like a well-read dude, and the thought that like people like he made like a dumb comedy of just like really like eats at him, because Cabin Boy is like smart, like it knows what it's doing, like it references like a lot of classic films from the fifties, uh, you know, and like all the uh, boys' adventure tales. So it has these, re- you know, I don't know if they call them high or references, but it has like enough re- references like film history and literature to like show like okay, this is a guy who, like knows about stuff, and like it's smart dumb humor. And smart dumb humor is hard to do right, but when it's done right, it's very to its intended audience. It's like it's it's wonderful, mm-hmm. and like you know, a lot of this is kind of like cutting around everything that's not the joke, so only the joke is what's left, or just right. like doing making choices like why did they do this? Like why is Andy Richter dancing? <laughs> like why is Chris Elliott in these short pants? <laughs> right, and why why do they hold on Andy Richter dancing so long? You know, yeah, <laughs> it's like. Why does this giant monster look so bad? And why is he like, why is the character being played like, uh, you know, some working class put upon like that? Like, why, why this choice? And it's the right choice, though. It's a wonderful choice. I, I couldn't agree more. Michael, you're absolutely correct in that. You know, there's all this kind of like well-crafted, kind of interesting, intentional kind of humor and references throughout the movie. And, you know, as we've kind of given it this, insanely close eye to i mean we're, we're seeing all those things albeit with the kind of our unfortunate ignorance about a lot of the references which we do our best to catch up with um but i also wonder that what happened to the movie in the editing process like that's the other aspect of it where it seemed like adam lost some control there yeah they just cut it down it's basically okay so legally contractually the shortest a movie can be is 80 minutes anything other than that is considered a short film and oh is that it media wow. is 81 minutes so <laughs> the studio basically put out as little of the movie as possible that's funny yeah because it's exactly 80 minutes 
Yeah. Which works they, out for us because we only have 80 podcasts that we have to do. <laughs> yeah, like, you know, me and my friends like to do bad movie nights. And usually whenever, like, you know, we sit around, drink some wine, make fun of it. And usually uh, whenever a movie is like 80 minutes long, that's a good sign. That's, that's really terrible. <laughs> right. Yeah, I mean, in the commentary, they talk about this. You just mentioned this. And I know even in your article, you refer to uh, Tim Heidecker, the adult swim guy, as Dadaist. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I mean, we started to kind of make connections with this Dadaism and the surrealism with Cabin Boy, you know, directly and start trying to look at it through the lens of like one of those artistic movements. And I mean, ultimately, we decided that it's best not to evaluate Cabin Boy as a movie mm-hmm. and more so as art. Because when you when you do that, you kind of allow it to breathe and drop more of the expectations and can appreciate it for like its thing in itself. So yeah, I mean, what, what what do you make of that? Like you definitely have to be on its own wavelength. You have to come to it. It's not going to come to you. It's not an audience pleaser. But if you can get on this weird little what what is this doing and why? It's amazing. Like I thought it held up beautifully when I you watched it. Like this is even funnier than when I was a kid. I mean. I agree. Like, look, we we sit down and watch one minute at a time and, and yeah. over and over again, finding every little detail. And it's I mean, there's so much in there, too, that makes me laugh even harder when I'm mm-hmm. really looking at what's going on in the background. And, and and furthermore, you know, finding all these connections. I mean, there's that anachronistic you know, tone of it. We were not sure what the, you know, what time period it was in. But most of it points to the 1930s. And when I tell you there's dozens of 1930 specific references, just props and things like that in the movie, it it blows my mind. It's almost like every week there's some new 1930s. Just for example, there's a dartboard on a back wall sitting there and it's it was you know made in 1931 you know they mentioned fudgesicles which were released in 19 whatever 1933 it's all these little things now that could just be maybe a very good prop department in the movie Mm -hmm. studio or something but it's it's just those little details like wow like somebody really put effort into this yeah people work hard on the film (laughs) it just it just makes it even funnier though too especially in the context that you know so many people don't like it or just think it's a piece of shit when it's like, no, this is, there was something going on here. Like I mentioned, like I do the bad movie nights with my friends. And like, one thing I've just learned is like, no one sets out to make a bad movie. Like everyone thinks they're going to make something good. Everyone like works hard. They care about it. Like there's people, okay. There are some films that clearly like no thought was put in this. It's just a money grab, but lots of films like were made from a, a deep place of appreciation for the form and just something went wrong. And, uh, in this case, it, it went wrong in the best way possible. Right. I mean, and taking that that step further, when you interviewed Merlora Walters, you know, mm-hmm. she she's quoted as saying, you know, Chris Elliott's character, he's on kind of a Joseph Campbell's hero's journey. Yeah. Which on its surface may sound absurd, right? Uh, with respect to Cabin Boy, but in fairness, this kind of closer look. It does yeah. carry a little bit more weight, you know. I, I don't, I don't know if we're just in too deep that we're also making those connections, but uh, no, it's I don't a know. it is like you know, 
the Joseph Campbell journey is kind of like from immaturity to maturity, from boyhood to manhood, from, uh, you know, striking onto the world and becoming a leader. And like, that's the, that's the arc he follows. Like, that's like arc of like a lot of films. It's completely like when she said that, I was like, oh, wow. Like, <laughs> it's like, you know, you know, telling people about the film, I'm Robert Cowboy. was like, why are you writing about that? Because no, so it's, it's, it's a film with some stuff going on. And when she said that, like, yeah, she gets it. She understands how important this film is. And, uh, but yeah, like, it's just so funny to me, like, that Laura Walters is in this because, like, I'm like, okay, so obviously I saw the film, but then later, like, you know, I loved her in Magnolia. I loved her in uh, Boogie Nights. Uh, she was great in the HBO series Big Love. Like, you know, she's a great dramatic actress. So, like, the fact that she was in this silly film early in her career is just, like, amazing to me. Yeah. And she's great. And, they, you know, on the commentary, they, they say how she was the only one that could have played that part. And, I, you know, I kind of agree with that. Yeah. Yeah, one of the points they make in the commentary is that uh, if they made the movie nowadays, you wouldn't have all these character actors filling all these roles. It yeah. would all be various types of young comedians and what have you. And that aspect of it where you've got like, you know, Rich Brinkley, Melora Walters, Russ Tamblin, mm-hmm. like all these folks in there who have are all, you know, highly talented and have done all this dramatic work. Yeah. Play in the straights to Chris Elliott's ridiculous person. I mean, it, mm-hmm. it's yeah. a beautiful combination. Yeah. You know, here's another thing that got cut out of the archivist for time. Uh, Dan Automator told me a story that once he was hanging out, with uh, David Cross and David Cross's now wife, uh, then girlfriend Amber Tamblin, and like David Cross is like saying how much he lo- you know loved uh, loved his album and everything, and they're hanging out for a while. And at some point, Dan said, "So, Amber, I kind of made an album dedicated to a film that your dad's in," and she thought that was really funny. <laughs> I always hoped that the uh, Amber Tamblin would retweet the article just because she has a lot of followers on Twitter, but it didn't happen. I didn't want to ask her directly because I would look a little thirsty. When you, when you finish this podcast, do you think you might go episode by episode for Get a Life? It's been floated. <laughs> I, I rewatched the month before the article, and Adam freely admits that the first episode of Get a Life is just okay. But then, like, once it starts doing its own thing, it's really good. Like, it's uneven, but the, the high part's really funny. This might be an impossible question. I'm sure it is. But, you know, we pontificate sometimes. Cabin Boy was so influenced by what, you know, they, they wrote the screenplay because it was a Tim Burton vehicle. But yeah. if they were to make their own movie, you know, what would it have been about? You know, I'm sure they couldn't even answer that. But Right. He said, like, yeah, if we were to write our own film and not for Tim Burton, it wouldn't have been like an adventure type thing. It would have been completely something different. We don't know what it would have been, but like we wrote that for Tim Burton. Yeah. I mean, obviously he has a lot, you know, other works out there. But you mentioned Adam Resnick's book, uh, you know, Will Not Attend. Is that yeah. the one you're talking about? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I mean, just something along those lines, you know, that kind of, you know, almost self-deprecating humor, and it sure connects with me. Yeah, I agree. I still can't get around the fact, and maybe this is uh, why I'm trying to, like, protect Cabin Boy in my head and my heart, Mm -hmm. that I I still can't call it having cult status. I mean, you you say it has cult status. They the Kino Lorber thing, the cult classic that angered nation. I mean, I know cult status is ephemeral term, but what do you say as far as it actually being a cult classic? Oh, it definitely is. 
Like, yeah. you know, if a movie is remembered passionately and maybe it wasn't like popular at the time, but it, people care about it now. Yeah, that's a cult. Like, you have to like, think about this way. The vast majority of films are in theaters for a couple of weeks and there's never heard of again. You know, and then there's like huge blockbusters and like or like, you know, impactful films that really like kind of stay in the cultural memory. And there's just weird things like kind of attract some sort of like person who wants like some sort of like unique experience. They latch onto it. And like if your movie is remembered at all, you've, you've made a great accomplishment. Yeah. What I want to see, I, I think more of like Rocky Horror Picture Show or something where they, you know, have these big stage productions and people go, you know, file into the movie theater every night and go, that's what I want for Cabin Boy. And that's what I would seek as cult status. But, yeah, like, I, I don't, well, hmm. I'm sure that if Cabin Boy, I think I missed it, but like, I think like Cabin Boy, they showed like, uh, I think I was out of town, actually, but I think they showed it at, the, at this Brooklyn Theater, The Nighthawk. And like Adam Resnick did a Q and A, and it was packed. So like you know, I don't know how often it does like midnight showings, or I guess midnight showings aren't a thing at the moment. But like you know, people showed up for it. Like people remember it's got a thing. Maybe it's not Rocky Horror, but you know that's like Rocky Horror is like the number one cult movie of all time. Right. So like it's uh maybe not on that level, but no, it has its fan base. Well, we've been playing with the idea of Cabin Boy the video game and oh. Cabin Boy the theatrical production. Mm-hmm. It's one of our kind of go-to questions. And in my humble opinion, we've come up with some real workable ideas that uh, one or both of those need to come into action <laughs> soon. Once we I, 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 I mean, that sounds amazing. Cabin Boy the Broadway musical. Yeah. And it, we've it, been it, fleshing both of those ideas out. Cabin Boy, the open world RPG. Explore all that there is to know about, uh, you know, floating cupcakes and uh, giant shoe salesmen. Mm-hmm. And then the theatrical production that we've been fleshing out. Uh, I believe at one point we determined it was going to be like the most expensive musical ever and, you know, likely would have multiple deaths involved and lawsuits and what have you. But okay, that might be a tough pitch. <laughs> <laughs> so we'll work on it a little bit. Yeah. All right. Taking the note. Um, when you said um, you would uh, throw cabin boy quotes when you were a kid to friends in like high school and like whatever stuff like that. What was the uh, what was the hit percentage on that? Uh, amongst my close friends, pretty high, and then amongst like just regular people, I guess normal people, top popular people, very low, very very low. I, I definitely remember like uh, later on. Yeah, I definitely remember when Handsome Boy Modeling School came out, and uh, I was like, Handsome Boy Modeling School. Where do I know that name from? And then I was reading Max's article about. I was like, Oh, I remember. I remember Get a Life. And then when Dandy Automator dropped like the solo album, like, Hey, want to buy a monkey? I was like. Cowboy, cowboy, right there. Yeah, when that came out, it was like Nathaniel Mayweather. Like, oh, oh this guy, this guy. Yeah, this it. awesome. This, Dan, Dan, the Iron Mayor knows what's up. I know you're a big music guy. Like, is the is there a band or an album or something that would most uh, represent the Cabin Boy experience? Hmm, good question. Hard to say, but I guess I just do kind of have to go back to like. John Worcester, because like the the uh, comedy duo Worst Sharpling Worcester are like you know they're like the best radio comedy thing of like you know the '90s and 2000s, and they're still really good. And like uh, he's such a like force in music, also that kind of like anything John Worcester sort by default becomes like the cowboy experience. But I guess musically, really would have to be Dan the Automator, because like his music is really funny and so weird, but also like really well done. That I, I guess I have to put up the, put up the Dan. He 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 earned the title. 
you say in the article, you know, Resnick notes that it's kind of shorthand for bad movie, you know, Cabin yeah. Boy. And it's, mm-hmm. it's like the butt of the joke, you know, what is this going to be in the Criterion collection? You know, that kind of thing. Was surprised to see that Kino Lorber deluxe edition. Because for a while, like, it was available on DVD, but it was like a bare bones, like the movie, the pre, the, uh, like the, the only special features, like the trailer, and that was it. It was like, well, here, this exists in case someone wants it, but we're not going to put any effort into it. But no, the Kino Lorber thing is a nice package. I remember years ago, there was some weird Twitter joke where someone had like photoshopped uh, what a Cowboy release on the Criterion Collection could look like. And it was like, I was like, yeah. And I never made the joke on Twitter years ago. It was like 2012, 2013. Like, Release the Criterion Collection version of Cowboy, you cowards. Do it. <laughs> right. Why do you think this movie pisses people off so much? I mean, it does seem to piss them off a lot. Because when people don't get the joke, they feel like something's wrong with them. If people don't understand why it's funny, they think the joke is on them. Mm. Yeah. And it's almost like Elliot leans into that a, yeah. a bit. And, like, you know, I think some people, they just find Chris Elliott off-putting because, like, you know, he starts off the film, like, being this really obnoxious rich kid. And then, like, is such an idiot that they don't really give him, they don't really give him a lot of redeeming characteristics until the end. Right. If it was a more professional, like, Hollywood endeavor, they would have given him, like, some sort of redeeming qualities at the very beginning. So we wouldn't think he's a complete, like, uh, you know, brat, but they didn't bother to do that. Yeah, yeah, it was one of the kind of like inversions of the hero's journey thing they have there, where it's like, here's your hero, he sucks. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the things they're referencing were just like not the early claymation type things they uh, referenced, like the 50s type films. Right, the animation, uh, Ray Harryhausen and all that. Mm-hmm. These were not things that were really in in the cultural lexicon, so people didn't, didn't get the references or knew why they're making those jokes. I mean, even the like the movie, it's quote unquote parodying uh, Captain's Courageous. I mean, I know it was like mm-hmm. a big movie of the time, but you know, I I don't know anybody that would even know that it was based. I was surprised later in life to even learn that it was loosely based on Captain's Courageous. Yeah, and it's, it's, it, those were the things like maybe if you were of a certain age in the '90s, you knew about, it, you grew up with it, but like younger other people might not have like no idea. Like, why are you referencing this? In its own way, like another great comedy film that was like not appreciated at this time, uh, Wet Hot American Summer. Like a big joke of his, like, A, had extremely random type humor. And like, I think like he probably was like a descendant of Cabin Boy. But it's like, why are they making fun of like 80s summer camp films? Like, why that genre? Like, why pick that? It's like, well, why uh, Captain Courageous? <laughs> part of the joke. The, uh, the accidental element of the way the movie came together is, you know, it's why, like we've talked about that. It, it, nothing's really kind of recreated it. Yeah. Right. Because they, they make the movie for Tim, Tim leaves, Adam's in charge. Adam doesn't totally know what he's doing and almost doesn't even want to do it. Yeah. And then the way it gets cut at the end, like you can't recreate that intentionally. Yeah. Like a lot of things had to go wrong in the right way. And like, once it was made, like, Clearly, people are like, oh, yeah, we're never going to give Chris Elliott a starring role in a film again. Which is a sad thing. He's, you know, he talked in an interview, like, yeah, I've always been able to, like, you know, work. But it's never been, like, a lot of abundance in this industry. Like, after this, like, he was starting a live first season. But it was just kind of a weird year where they didn't really know what to do with him or Gene Garofalo. And then, you know, he worked. Like, we saw him in, like, there's something about Mary. If we, if we just do a straight-up sequel, what, what does that look like? Well, you know, like, uh, <laughs> he's the captain of the ship, he's taken over, and his, you know, he sent his son off to school, 
But he notices his son is becoming a layabout like him, so he like brings his son onto the ship and like kind of whips him into shape. Or his daughter. <laughs> yeah, okay, I like this now. Uh, his daughter, Abby Elliott, or I think Chris Elliott has another daughter who's an actress who's like uh, in some smaller stuff. She's like kind of a layabout. She needs to grow up a little bit, so he takes her on the ship and like shows her the world. Yeah, Bridie Lee. Yeah, Bridie Lee and uh, Abby. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Outside of Cabin Boy, I mean, you, you said you're working on a book. What are you working on? Uh, it's an oral history of MySpace. Hmm. Uh, so both about like how it went on behind the scenes of the website, uh, but more about like band, like the music culture and music fandom of with that era. So uh, I've talked to like a lot of the bands of the pop punk emo world, like uh, this band Thursday, Daffer Confessional. Talked to that guy. I'm trying to get Fall Out Boy, and Michael Romance, but I've also talked to like other people. It's not just emo. Like talked to Little John, the rapper. Mm-hmm. I've talked to Far East Movement. I've talked to a lot of indie rock bands that kind of blew up for, off the website, like this band Cloud Nothings and this band uh, Clap Your Hands Say Yes. So if you love music, if you love music at the time, hopefully you'll find something to love. And one thing I really want to do a piece about is like, I feel your audience might really love this. If you're looking for like a modern day, just really good cult comedy that completely like people are like, what? But like it's already kind of finding its audience. It came out a couple months ago. It's called Barb and Star Visit Vista Del Mar. And there's like two middle-aged best friends who go on a vacation and accidentally like run afoul of a super villain's plot. And it's like joke after joke and most random weird stuff. And it's great. Like I definitely like more of like, this movie came out in February, direct to DVD or direct to streaming. And it's already coming like this kind of touchstone on Twitter. And I, I don't want to, I'm going to pitch the ringer on because like this already has like a following now. Oh, that's great. Definitely yeah, check so, that out. If the people are like, looking for that, that next random weird cult movie to get into, that's the one. Or at least comedy. I've heard there's been a big cult following now about this uh, horror film called The Empty Man, which I haven't watched yet, but I hear that one's also like on film Twitter, we're really starting to get a passionate base, but I need to get on that. Nice. Quick question before you go. Uh, yeah. What'd you think of the uh, Scott Dreams album that Rosenstock just dropped? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, I thought it was great. Uh, it's inspired me because you know if because i like to make my contrarian arguments so like i'm going to pitch somewhere it's like you know ska was good like overall ska and ska punk was a good musical movement because like it was very energetic all of the bands had not to get political but all the bands had like a pretty like progressive worldview uh ska was based around uh racial inclusivity and standing against uh, racism and hatred which is like more relevant than it's ever been mm-hmm. plus like the My My Boss Tones in those bands, those guys worked hard. Like, they were up there. They were sweating. They had a guy dancing. They were there to entertain you. They put their back into it. There's no aloof coolness, and that's a very admirable thing. So I think the fact that Jeff Rosenstock made the argument, like, yeah, ska is good. Like, yeah, ska is good. So I'm going to try to see if I can get that place. <laughs> you never know. Like, some publication will be like, sure, why not? This will get shared. Or they'll be like, what? Why, 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 do you, why do you pitch this dumb stuff? Because <laughs> you never know. Well, again... Yeah. We're going to start rallying the Ska and Cabin Boy audience from the depths, right? Yeah. What's that <laughs> crossover? All 17 people? I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure, yeah. I'm sure it's at least 20. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a, uh, there was a new Ska Against Racism comp that they just put out that you could uh, ping off of as well. Oh, cool, yeah. I'll, I'll make sure to reference that. I know you talked about the book, but anything else, uh, articles coming out or anything like that we can look for? Uh, in a couple of weeks, I'm doing a feature for The Ringer again on this indie rock band called Japanese Breakfast. Uh, they have a great album called Jubilee out in June. And uh, so look for that if you're in like indie rock and stuff. Look for my book out next year, Top 8. And come say hi to me on Twitter at M 
T-E-D-D-E-R. Awesome, Mike. Hey, guys. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's been great. Thanks so much. Great to hook up with you. Thank you, man. Bye, man. Take care. Bye. Thank you again for joining us on Cabin Boy Minute. Please help spread the word, tell your friends about us, and rate and subscribe on your podcast medium of choice. Check out our episode notes where you can find calls to action, details on how to support the pod, or leave us a message. Or find us on Twitter at at Cabin Boy Minute. We look forward to joining you again next week. Bon voyage!